hate this mustache so much. Got to grow the beard back up. It's coming. I just look like I, I look like I literally woke up on a beach, like at, with like a ball of like Jameson in my hand. That's what it looks like right now. <laughs> Take that for an intro. Welcome to the Chris Two Cent Eric podcast. Chris is here. Eric is here. I am here. And we are so excited that you are with us for episode five of season one of our show. If you've been paying attention to the last four episodes, we've been walking through the irrationalness of, of fandom, the idea of being caught up into conspiracy theories and QAnon and things like that, and then looking at what it means to be leaders in a church to and me to era with our friends Tiffany and our friends Lisa. If you are fans of the show, we recognize that you're probably listening to us on podcasts. Make sure to download all previous episodes and share said podcast with everybody else. And then wherever you are listening to this, please leave a five-star review. The more reviews, the more shows we're able to do. And I did not mean for that to rhyme, but hey, it is what it is. It is what it is. And nobody, nobody does a promo quite like Chris Chase. Let's go, baby. It's his spiritual gifting. <laughs> amen and amen and amen. So, Chris, I was thinking about Josh Hamilton the other day. Uh, Josh, you mean Josh Hamilton from down the street or Josh Hamilton, the guy who used to play for the Texas Rangers and the, I guess, the Angels of Los Angeles? Yes, I was thinking of that Josh Hamilton. But as, I, okay. as you say that, I recognize that Josh Hamilton is probably one of the most generic white guy names that <laughs> exists. It's one, one step over from John Smith. But yes. It's right there. It's in the neighborhood. Yeah. So I was thinking about Josh Hamilton and I know that, I know that's really weird, but there's, there was a piece written by a guy named Brian Curtis, who's one of my favorite journalists and, and writers. And it was on Grantland, which is one of our shared favorite websites. Yes. Along with Grantland. And he wrote a piece about Josh Hamilton and Josh Hamilton played baseball. He was the MVP um, I think he won MVP one year. He was a really, really good baseball player. Um, there was a period where we wished that he was on our Blue Jays. But Josh Hamilton had a whole story. There was a part of his life where he messed things up pretty good. He had a drug addiction. He basically hit complete rock bottom, put his life back together, and managed to get it to a place where he was playing baseball um, at a really high level. He was married. He had, he had sort of the picture-perfect life. And a lot of that was tied into his his faith story. And so, do you remember much of that, Chris? I do. I remember. I remember the the thing I remember most about him was the home run derby. Remember that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. The All Star Game and how it was. Um, I, can't, I believe it was a sponsor. Is either his dad or his sponsor who was pitching to him during the, the 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 spot right before the finals, and he's just kidding balls out of the park the entire time, and the crowd is just going electric for him. And the entire time, it's a narrative, right? Like sports are important because not only because of the points on the board or goals in a net, whatever else it is, it's about the narrative. And the narrative around him was the person pitching to him has been the person who was who I helped pick him up from this lowly estate to, to, to sound really old school preacher right there, right? Um, who helped pick him up from this this literal rock bottom where he lost his marriage, he lost he pretty well lost his career, he lost years off of his life, and suddenly this gargantuan 
um, giant of a baseball player has this moment of, of redemption and how that played into every story of every win and every possibility. He leads his team to two World Series in a row. He, he leads his team. He leads this story. And there's this, this groundswell, which is what Christians do all the time. Just of once we hear redemption and lights and cameras, we rally around somebody. But like anything, it's unfortunate. Maybe I sound doomsday prophetish. There's always that moment where the other shoe drops. And I remember, I remember not only the arc and the dip and then the rebirth. I remember that descent and how the world sort of responded to him in the midst of that descent. Yeah, I mean, Josh Hamilton, his story is basically like a Lifetime movie, right? Like you couldn't script it like any <laughs> yeah. better. I mean, like we've all watched that sort of cheesy movie, but it's his real life. It's like, oh, like you, you couldn't script it any better in a way. But that's kind well, of what Brian Curtis gets. You could script it a little bit better with it not happening. <laughs> I suppose, but... <laughs> For those of us who are on the outside looking in, you're like, what a wonderful story. But that's what Brian Curtis gets at in this Grantland piece that has, I mean, he wrote it back in like 2013 and it's almost like eight years later, nine years later now. And it's that piece has stuck with me since then. And Brian Curtis kind of makes the case that Josh Hamilton gets stuck in this narrative because Curtis writes the piece at the point where the redemption arc has happened, but things are starting to sour for Josh Hamilton a little bit. He's not performing at the level he was. He's had, he's had a relapse. It, it's hard to spin the narrative in quite the same way. The, the story has moved on to a unexpected fourth act that looks mm-hmm. a lot like real life. Um, we've moved out of the Lifetime movie and, and we've moved past the point from when the Lifetime movie usually ends into all the things that all the space and time that happens after that that we never get to see on screen. Yeah, it's, 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 the, it's the write-up. It's like when the movie ends, it's like shortly after this film, Josh went into relapse and then the credits go, right? You're kind of like, oh, nuts. Right. What Curtis gets at is this idea that Josh is trapped in this narrative of he has to keep telling the story of his redemption, of how he's turned his life around and everything is now perfect. It's better. He's found Jesus. He's he's found sobriety. Everything is, is he's got it all together now. And there's no room for him to be a human being. He's kind of a myth, almost a legend in a way, right? You know, this is the, this is the story that, from our context, this, Josh Hamilton is a story that many a preacher uses in the last five minutes of their sermon to be like, you need to turn your life around and mm-hmm. find Jesus today because look at what happened to Josh Hamilton when he did that and how much better his life is. And your life can be like that too. Now, come to the front and we'll pray for you. And your life can be like that. You know, Josh is that example. And there's a lot of pressure when you're being held up as that example of what Jesus can do, of what um, sobriety can do, of what you can do as a person. And to, to maintain that image, to maintain that story, it's just a really hard thing to live up to because you don't always feel like you can be yourself. And how can you be honest? How can you, how can you, how can you do that? Because you just know you're going to let people down and mess things up. And not only will you know that you'll let people down, letting people down is an inevitability. Like at a certain point, at a certain point in time, you will text me about something 
And I might not get back to you at the time that you need me to get back to you. And that is a minuscule disappointment, but it's a disappointment nonetheless. There's, it's absolutely impossible to avoid that, to even stay in bed all day to avoid disappointment is to somehow disappoint somebody that you did not get out of bed. So you, you, you maximize, you, you magnify that to this degree where this, this man, this young man at the time um, was put on a pedestal where failure was not allowed to be an option, but failure was at some points the only option. So imagine kind of carrying that, that stress, not only in the public sphere, but then in the church sphere, and then on the baseball field, where ultimately you are paid to score runs for your team and to make sure that the other team does not score runs. And somehow his dropping of a ball in the outfield was somehow related to the failure in the public sphere and the failure in the church sphere, which then pushes him to back towards addiction because that's his safe place to not be able to have this sort of conversation out loud because the picture of perfect was more important than the picture of humanity. And I resonate with Josh Hamilton and that feeling. I think that's why that story has stuck with me. I mean, I've read so many articles since then, but that one's always stuck in my mind because in the church circles I grew up in and the experience I've had, that narrative arc of, you know, human beings make mistakes, they fall, but then Jesus redeems and puts your life back together. And so when, you know, when you give your life to Jesus, you're saved, and then you become a Christian and everything is supposed to be good. And you're supposed to live a certain way and be a certain type of person. And your life is supposed to, um, will, will turn out along a certain path. And that was the narrative I was given but that's just like, it, it's that standard sort of three act play, right? Like up, down, back up. But that narrative does not make room for what happens after the credits roll, mm-hmm. right? You know, we were, we were very good at telling people of like, well, how do you get to the climactic moment of your own personal lifetime movie? Of how, do you, how do you get to that ending? You know, the little Disney ending. But what do you do with the rest of your life after you've come to Jesus? And I know for me, like I grew up in the church. And so my original come to Jesus moment was probably when I was like five or six years old. You know, I I don't even really remember it, but that was, I was a Christian. And so I grew up with the idea that this, you know, you had to live a certain way. And I grew up in the church culture, which reinforced that. And we talked a little bit about this with Tiffany and Lisa, you know, this, I, as a teen growing up with the idea of purity culture of, well, there's a standard that you're supposed to meet if you're, if you say that you're a Christian and it means that you don't do certain things. And that list was pretty extensive um, in the church culture I grew up in. Um, you didn't, we didn't drink, we didn't smoke, we didn't dance, we didn't, we certainly didn't have sex outside of marriage. Um, we didn't, you know, even do things that would make it look like we might do those things. Um, and that's just so much to live up to. And, mm-hmm. and also, there wasn't a lot of space for what happened when you didn't live up to them. I don't know. What about you? What was your experience, Chris? Well, I think, you know, the idea of, you know, what would, what would your life look like if Twitter was around when you were a teenager, right? And I know the things I probably would have tweeted would have had me canceled multiple times over in 2021. We would be, 
we will be doing this podcast as two men who are against the system of cancel culture and who are waiting for the PC culture to, you know, get tabs, but and blah, blah, blah. That's, that's what it would look like, right? And that's likely how I would have responded to it. Because growing up, I became uh, a Christian um, in grade nine. So I had a certain way of living from zero to 14 years old. Um, so the, the words I the words I used against people um, were horrible. The attitudes I had towards authority were horrible. Shout outs to you know Mrs. Mullen if you're listening to this podcast. I'm sorry, <laughs> my grade seven and grade eight uh, English teacher, and Mrs. Maureen and Mrs. McLaughlin and Mr. McLaughlin and all the other teachers at Emmanuel Christian School. I'm sorry that my parents paid for the money for me to be at that school to drive you to drive you uh, insane. But the things I the things I said to classmates that weren't a part of my clique, a part of my circle, all of those sort of things were horrible. And then I became a Christian at 15 years old, and then suddenly I am th- thrown into the fire of don't swear, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do this, don't and. The results of that would be, you're not going to be a leader. You're not going to be able to hang out with us. You're not going to be able to sing. You might not even be able to go to youth. And if you do that, you know what that means? You're a backslider. All of those things were suddenly put into my mind. So at, 14, so at 13 years old, we're going to have a grown-up conversation. Pornography was something that boys did, right? Like you're, 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 you're learning, you're exploring, and you know, the buddy's like, I found this tape, I found this magazine. You're like, oh my God, it's amazing. What's this? What's this? Boobs. Like that sort of thing. Suddenly in church, like the, even the thought of it means that you, you do not let your left hand know what your right hand's weak. It's better that you poke your eye out, right? And we're not explaining it from the grace perspective that Jesus is talking about. We're talking about it from a disciplinary perspective. Um, or if you or if you use foul language or if, you know, if you whatever you know whatever like we and we have our litany of of lists of things that we have in terms of the worst sins and then Mm -hmm. like the sins like you know like gossiping about somebody with a as a prayer request is not gossip it's not bad but this is and so growing up as a teenager into young adulthood as a as a christian it was like failure felt like the worst thing in the world and then on top of that it's like where do you go with your failure because if you go to your youth pastor with your failure some days you might you might get a, a pound on the shoulder and hey it's gonna be okay and we're gonna get through this together and other days you might get a you're done it's a wrap it's over for you you don't belong here you're you're a danger to yourself and to others because i because my friend showed me a playboy magazine like that's the end of my story and so the the idea of the idea of what that would look like in terms of like I didn't, and I didn't realize this because I'm walking into this. So I wasn't like you at five years old, kind of going, this is just what I know. I walked in like wanting to be accepted so much in this new space that I took on anything. And I remember, I remember being in college and coming back from a youth retreat. And there was a, there was a girl at the time. This is like when I was in Montreal, Sejap, not Bible college, but in Sejap, I was 17 years old. And there was a girl that was kind of fancying. And at that point, we we're like, we're going to go on a date when I get back from this retreat. Well, God rocks my life. And then suddenly I couldn't even talk to this girl. And I remember her face literally being like, like heart, heart crestfallen as I was explaining the virtues of my brand new found purity, my brand new found this, this, that, and the other. And her face kind of like, 
if this is what this Christianity is, that's destroyed this friend of mine, I want nothing to do with it. And this idea of, this idea of not only not understanding where to place that newfound joy of Jesus, but then the act of trying to be like everyone else, because that was at the time what I thought normal was. Now, at 40 years old, that's the most backed up BS in the world. But at the time, my friend, like that was what you need to do to survive. I resonate so strongly with that sort of experience of youth group. I mean, cause that was my experience of church youth group was that was both the place that I most wanted to belong. It was where all my friends are. It was where I, you know, I got to play music, which I loved and, you know, it was the place to belong, but also it was the place that at the same time I felt like I could almost in many ways least be myself mm-hmm. or at least be honest about myself. Because if I did, then I would lose those friends or I would lose my ability to put music. I mean, I knew people in my youth group who, when they came forward about what they were doing with their girlfriend or whatever, um, you know, were like, Oh, well, you means you can't play on the worship team for the next year. And I'm like, well, that would suck. <laughs> <laughs> Like that's your reward for being Confessing. honest about what's up. Yeah. Is the th- oh, that thing you love and that way that you express yourself and the way that you participate in what we're doing. Yeah, no, you can't do that anymore. You need to go have a timeout in the corner. And the worst part about that too was that then like everybody knew because you suddenly yeah. weren't playing music anymore. Yeah. It's like, hey, you were there every week. And now, I forgot now about that. Not- so that's a good point. That's such a good point. Like suddenly like, why are you playing? Well, I, I, I know spaces and me probably knows too, right? And I'm not to cut you off, but like a places that they would say like, this person is no longer playing because they did this. And then you're like, why, like, why are you putting my business out on the streets for this? Is, it's such a, it, like, and somehow people thought by shaming you publicly, that's going to help you long-term. It's. <laughs> and I get, I get the other side of it. Like I've, Heard Danielle Strickland talk about this, where she talked about one time, like she had something going on in her life and she confessed it to the people that were in charge of her church. And they were like, okay, well, we've written it down and it's in a sealed envelope and it's going to be kept here and nobody's ever going to see it ever again. And she's like, oh no, like you can tell people. Like, she's like, I'm not trying to like hide this. Like, she's like, I'm, I'm confessing it because I want to get it out there. Right. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to live secretly. And I think that's, I think that's actually a really good impulse and we'll probably get to that a little bit later is that idea of like, no, we want to authentically, we don't want there to be this disconnect between who we are, you know, on the outside and, and who we really are. We, you know, we want that to be as mm-hmm. close together as possible. We want people to know our true selves. Um, but I think when it's kind of taken out of your hands and it's yeah, almost yeah. A, as, as, a, as a punishment, as a, as a shaming tactic, I, I think when you don't get to ha- have that narrative of, well, actually this is what's happened. And so here's what I'm doing in response to that. Right. I mean, I think again, we've been talking about it over these past few weeks. There are always times where, you know, you, you modeled this a couple of times where we were talking about Kobe Bryant and he's kind of saying like, yeah, 20 year old, 23 year old Chris would think about this very, very different than 40 year old Chris. Right. And, and like, and I have to own up to the fact that like, I did think those things Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I have said those things and I, I need to own that. And I need to admit to that. And I need to say that's wrong. Like we need to do that. I remember my youth in many ways, just being 
a period of carrying sort of intense shame around mm. because I knew there were things that I was doing or in my life that I didn't line up. And I mean, to be honest, I mean, there are still moments where I feel sort of intense shame, both about things that, you know, happened back then or about times where it's like, oh, you know, I don't know that I always live up to my ideals or to my values. And I know people can sometimes see that disconnect. And how do I, how do I, how do I manage that? Right. I mean, I, mean, I know that I heard, I, I do and say things where I, I hurt people. It happens. I mean, just ask, ask my wife, you know, do I ever say anything hurtful? Like, well, mm. dear Lord. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's not what I want to do. And I mean, and we've talked about this too, but you know, we all participate in systems that are bigger than us that are causing harm all over the place that we need to own some responsibility for. But that doesn't fit in the clean sort of up, down, up, you know, arc narrative, the lifetime movie that we want to tell about our lives. The idea of carrying shame, like I think that there should be a, um, a PhD course about that in terms of like the carrying, like, you know, shout out to Brene Brown, like the carrying of shame that we, we, that, that latches onto our lives in our, in our teenage season, right. In our young adult season that we kind of, we are, I always have the saying, like we, we are all living perpetual high school. Like even as we go into adulthood, we're still sort of in that high school locker room sort of space. We never kind of graduate from that because we kind of go right back into those weird shame spaces at our worst moments. And I think how confession works in that is very important because I think for, I won't speak for both of us, but for me, confession was really scary. You mentioned it, right? Like if I confess what I'm going through, I might lose everything and people might know. And it's not because I want people to know. It's because somebody else felt like they, other people needed to know. And, and I understand that in some spaces, you don't get, you don't get the right to control that narrative. I understand certain spaces kind of like you've done something so egregious that you don't get to write your own press release. You don't get to do that. Like there's certain times where like, that's sorry, you've lost the right to do that. But in the case of just kind of like one's personal journey, we go back to Josh Hamilton, one's personal journey. Sometimes the fear of confession confession is fearful because the fear of what you you might lose is greater in one's mind than the benefit of having what you were most fearful of off your shoulders so you talk about how like if i if i confess i'm not gonna be able to play you know i might not be able to go to youth group i might not be able to go to retreat i might not be able to be on leadership might not be able to do this you look in our line of work if i confess this and I might not be able to be on this committee. I might not be able to lead this way. I might have to take, I'm have to sit for nine months. I might have to do all of these sort of pieces. You know what? It's probably, you know, it's probably better than I just kind of keep this between Jesus and I, which is actually only one part of confession. Mm. It's not the entire part. Confession is not only having that moment with God, but then having that in, whether you want to call it in the assembly, whether that assembly is in a group of, a group of friends or in a larger space of people who are understanding and grace filled and who are going to keep accountable to that sort of space, whether it's, you know, an Alcoholics Anonymous or recovery group or, you know, a, a home church, a life group, whatever the, the space is. But for many of us, we stop after the God part because we're so worried about that, you know, that face when someone, when you tell somebody you did something wrong and that you, and you see that face kind of go, oh, Okay. We're so worried about that shame face that we would rather keep it to keep it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. There's no two ways around it. That feeling sucks. Like I mean, there have been moments in my life where I've had to have really 
awful conversations with people I've hurt very badly. And we've talked about those things. And, you know, when I look back at those conversations, like I don't go like, yeah, I would really like to have that conversation again. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's something I would really like to sign up for. You know, that experience is, is painful. You're, you're, you're coming face to face with the sort of truth about yourself and, and that just sucks. And, and you can see so clearly how you hurt somebody else and that, and you feel awful about it. And that, in that moment, it almost feels like there's nothing you can do. I mean, it feels like the words that you're saying are just not, like, it's just, they're not BS, but it just, they just feel so small in compared to what, you know, in comparison. Um, and you know that there's going to have to be, you know, weeks and months and years of rebuilding trust and rebuilding relationship. And maybe the relationship's never going to be the same. You don't know. And so, yeah, I get why we avoid that. And, and, that, and that's not just with the person that we might have hurt or something like that. I think it's even harder when it's maybe not that person, but it's somebody that we feel that we need to we need to unburden ourselves to, whether it's a, an employer, or a boss, a person that we've a spouse, um, you know, when we have to say, there's this thing I did, or this is what I thought, or this is what I felt. And so I, I'm with you that I think confession is super important. I think it's the key to a lot of what we've actually been talking about. I think, I think we're, when we were talking with Tiffany and Lisa and we're talking about these systems um, and we're talking about people who cause harm and abuse power, oftentimes it's just what's really needed is for the person who's done that to not have to wait until there's 16 different people saying, yeah, oh yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> like that, like at that point, there's no coming back. Like it, Sh- it, you, shout you know, out to you, Deshaun Watson, at least at the time <laughs> of this recording. Um, you know, there's, there's no coming back because nobody, people are only ever going to take, take your apology as well he was forced into it because mm-hmm. everything came out if they were just able to keep it hidden and so i think there is something about having to lead that but in particular in the north american evangelical church we have completely lost what has traditionally been a long-standing christian practice that i think even in the what we would term the sort of more liturgical way that our catholic brothers and sisters do it like we've lost this practice of confession and maybe we don't all need to go to a little booth and talk to our priest, but I think we do need spaces where we can be honest about ourselves and be truthful about the harm that we've done and the wrongs that we've, we've, we've done without, not without fear of consequence, because I think we're always going to be consequence, but with, but without fear of, damnation yeah yeah i i would i would add to that the fear of shame too right like mm-hmm. i think that's i think that's the part that we were and i don't know whether or not we're more afraid of the consequence or we're more afraid of the shame based on the consequence right we're more afraid of what someone's then going to think because you can't I, I can't control what you think about me right if, even if I've said, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't control, I cannot force you to forgive me and to treat me the exact same way before you knew what I told you. And I don't know whether, I, I, I always think about that, from, even for myself, like, am I more afraid of the consequence? Is that why I'm not, or am I more afraid of, for, for the shame that comes to saying it out loud? Or am I more afraid of that person's reaction? 
And to find, and I, I go back, so I go back to what you said, like, like that practice of confession, because we haven't practiced it, it's so much harder to jump into it because we haven't been, we haven't naturally, at least in our circles, we haven't done it naturally. We haven't done it regularly as a regular thing. For us, confession is go to the altar or go to a home church. That's, that's in our, those are the two worlds that we've lived in. We've both mm-hmm. done, uh, we both pastored in, um, in Pentecostal circles, charismatic circles. And the confession space was an altar and a leader at the altar. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes the leader was maybe like the same age as us with no formal training in counseling, with no formal training in psychology or psych- as, as psychiatrics, uh, in, in no formal training in counseling, just like a person who's like 21 years old going like, I hear you, brother. I hear you, man. Let's pray about that. Or it's, or it's, thank you for saying that, go to a home church or to a life group or to a small group. And that's where you, you are going to confess. That's one. Or it's bury that ish deep down in your soul and never tell a soul. And what happens mm. is you then either feel shame and guilt and you do it again, or you feel reprieve and you feel loose and you feel like you've gotten away with murder and you do it again. On either side, you're doing again. And so I think if we were to figure out a way of making confession a regular spiritual discipline, like we do with prayer, like we do with serving, like we do with giving, like we do with worship, to make confession among the body a regular practice, man, the things that people would avoid because you stopped it at the beginning. Yeah, and I think we need to normalize confession for really small things because right now when we talk about confession we often our minds jump to the really big things things. right it's like oh well if somebody is going to confess something to me it's going to be like huge they had an affair they there's a case of abuse there's embezzlement you know it's like there's probably a crime involved yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's it's what we it's what we would list as the big things right instead of like well actually i felt angry with you and, you know, and I, or I was talking about you the other day and it was actually kind of negative and that's not fair to you. Mm-hmm. And I, I, need, I just need to tell you that. And if we start making that kind of a regular thing, then it doesn't spiral out of control, right? Where I think of Ravi, right? And, you know, what if, instead of even Ravi being confronted, what if Ravi had just said to somebody early on, you know, right? Yeah. When I, yeah. when I, when I'm getting a massage, <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing. My mind, yeah. Yeah. It's not funny, my mind but... goes here, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe he did. I mean, I don't know. But like, you know what? But if that became like a regular thing, maybe you deal with it in a different way. I don't know. But I, I do think that sort of normalization. There's a there's a friend of mine who actually has modeled this really well. He he he's part of the recovery world. And he, he came to me and because I was in a role of sort of pastoral authority, as he, people would term it, uh, he wanted me to fully kind of be aware of where he was at. And so he let me know that he's part of, you know, He's in recovery uh, in, in these groups. And so just wanted to let be fully upfront. And I was like, oh, I really appreciate that. But what was really cool was it was like a couple of weeks or months later, um, he's continuing to work through his steps. And he comes back to me and he says, hey, I, I was on the step where you're doing the inventory and I'm, I'm keeping track of people I might've caused harm to. And he's like, I recognize that I might've caused harm to these people um, through my words and my actions. And what he's talking to me about is not any of the big stuff. It was like, I was impatient or I would talk a little harshly or, you know, 
maybe my attitude wasn't always the best. And I may have said things that were hurtful, you know, not like nothing big, nothing that would run on TMZ or, you know, that mm-hmm. we print in the newspaper, just really everyday stuff that honestly, most of us would probably be like, Oh, just kind of let it go. But he'd been thinking about it and he'd been doing that work. And he's like, I, he wanted my advice on how to sort of proceed in making amends with, with these people. And as I'm listening to him talk, I'm sitting there thinking like, what do I, what do I say? And there's the part of me that I want to jump right to problem solving of like, Hey, here's how you should approach these people mm. to in the best possible way. But then there was the part of me was thinking, he's doing this really beautiful thing right now where he is modeling what I would would like to be able to do myself. And what I think yeah. pe- more people should be doing is, is confessing, normalizing confession of just, yeah, here's the everyday things where I'm getting it wrong. And he, he says this to me and I'm like, well, what would I want to hear in that moment? And I look at him and I said, this is going to sound really weird. I'm like, cause I don't ever say this. And I'm like, we're not part of this church culture. I'm like, but as your pastor, I want you to know that I forgive you. Mm. And his eyes started to water and my eyes started to water and we're sitting in Starbucks and we're both crying and we're trying to make it not look weird. But it was also this really powerful moment of he was fully seen. He was, he made himself vulnerable. And instead of being met with like discipline or even just basic problem solving of like, well, here's how you're going to make it better so that everything can be squared away. Just this, yeah, I forgive you. And, and for me to be able to say that, like that was moving for me to be able to say that, mm-hmm. to, to say to somebody like, oh, I, I, I forgive you for that. And I wasn't even the person that was hurt. And I just think we just have this longing for that, to truly be ourselves, to be authentic and to, and to experience love anyways, um, is, is I think honestly probably one of the deepest human longings to, to be truly known for who we are and to be loved anyways. I think honestly, we're all like, all of us are like three toddlers in a trench coat, right? Like, I mean, we're all just like- Trying to get to that R-rated movie. You know, like we're all just, we're all just faking it. I mean, as much as we can, right? You know, yeah. we're just, nobody, there's nobody who has it all together. Nobody, none of us have actually figured it out. And and so I think we just need to normalize that rea- being truthful. But like, I'm 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 a mess of, and I'm gonna mess this up and I'm gonna not do this right. And I don't really know what I'm doing and I've caused hurt. So I need to be honest about that. And I'm, I think it's just so sad to me that the church space is not the safe space for those conversations. The church space is the space where you would most often, somebody would either problem solve it for you or they would discipline you. Um, and we've actually sort of outsourced confession, which should be a core Christian practice. And we've actually kind of outsourced it to the, our therapists and our counselors and their offices are now the, the safe spaces for, for confession. And I, as a pastor, as a Christian, I think that's just a deep loss for us. After um, the, the murder of George Floyd, and I use that word specifically, I said what I said, the murder of George Floyd, a number of different churches and pastors and, and leaders um, use their use platforms to speak on the atrocity that had taken place. The, the murder happened on a Thursday, Friday. By Sunday, the world is talking about this. One of my favorite uh, pastor communicators, Matt Chandler out in Dallas. He's speaking in a, a really badly lit, really bad audio sound room because everyone's doing these things online at that point, right? Everyone's shut down and things. And he, I remember him saying, 
Um, he, and he's very passionate. He's very angry. And he's talking about how um, the church seceded civil rights and now we're mad and we're arguing about something that we should have been in the forefront of at the beginning of our story. We, 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 the only reason why we love Martin Luther King now is because he's dead, because we as a church hated him and thought he was an antichrist when he was alive and we seceded at somebody else. In, in the era of church being big business, we have given up so many of our natural tenets. We've given up civil rights and standing up for the marginalized and the minority and, and the person who is without the poor, all those sort of things. We have programs, but it's not our program. And we have done the same thing here. Listen, I, I, we could spend a whole podcast talking about the amount of times I've gone to see a counselor or gone to see a psychologist. Like we can spend absolute amount of time talking about, about various medications to, to deal with depression and, so, and, and social anxiety. So we can do that. But I felt safer doing it there under the under the under the doctor privilege doctor patient privilege and 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 all sorts of stuff because if I then in any other space oh I don't know if he could speak because well you know he has that you heard that he, you know, he had a panic attack right I don't know if he could or you know what Chris can you talk about depression and talk about like how God's redeemed you from you know like that sort of stuff but God forbid I have another one see the thing about these arcs these these arcs that we talked about go back to Josh, Josh Hamilton is in many cases, especially in Christian circles, you're only really allowed one redemption arc. You're only allowed one. So Josh Hamilton, he has this great budding Ricky career. He falls on his face publicly. He's redeemed. It's beautiful. He's on Christian radio, Christian. He writes, he's writing a book about his life. There's nothing like writing a book about your life before your life is over. Nothing like, like writing about it, like in the middle, right? Like a biography about your life. Like in, your, in your thirties, like your early twenties, yeah. early thirties. Yeah. 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 Speaking of which are the Kristen, Eric, Kristen, Eric, uh, podcast book is going to be out in two weeks. That being said, right. Cause, <laughs> because we've lived life long enough. We can tell you stuff. Right. And then, and then he crashes and then the Christians don't know what to do with him. Because like you only have room for you only have room for one. Some people, namely white evangelical male leaders, have room for maybe two. But most of us, we have we are only we have room for one platform moment, and it's for our redemption story. And in that, when that happens, we're only invited to talk about our redemption story and nothing else. Ask me about the amount of times I get to talk about I don't know anything outside of being a, a black leader. Ask me. Ask me. Don't ask me because I have to confess that. But you know what I mean? Because at a certain point in time, you're, you're relegated to that redemption story. And, and if you fall again, we then move on to the next redemption story. And it's not you. It happens in Hollywood. And somehow when we seceded the tenets of us, we just became Hollywood for Christians. That's a great segue into what we're going to talk about in our next episode about how we all just kind of default to cancel culture. It's kind of a buzzword right now that everybody's using, but I think you and I are both aware enough that the church has been doing different forms of cancel culture for a very long time. <laughs> yep. And it's intriguing that certainly again, evangelicals on the right seem to be the ones who are making the biggest fuss about cancel culture right now when it, 
from my experience in that world, it's something that they both practiced on others and that those of us who, who were in those spaces felt very afraid of happening to us. Because if you did step out of line, if you did disappoint, if you did confess, then as you said, yeah, maybe you got one, maybe you got one shot, but it wasn't much more than that because just didn't know how to deal with that because it didn't fit the arc of what they were trying, of what we were trying to say or what we were trying to sell. A couple of years ago at a church, we brought in a guest speaker to speak for Mother's Day and we wanted to take kind of a different approach. And we were actually in the middle of a series on mental health. And so she's wait, 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 time out, time out. Did you, okay, no, no, no so, did, so it wasn't the pastor's spouse who spoke in the one time a year? No, no, we brought somebody else in, actually. Okay. It wasn't the pastor's spouse. Okay, just wondering. Because, um, you know, they, I, get the, they, they get that one time a year, they got to make it shine. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, at that time, we did not have enough women speaking on a regular, but that's a different <laughs> story. Um. But it was Mother's Day, so um, yeah. I had to get that perspective in. If we're confessing things, I'll confess that. that. That was not a thing that we were doing well enough at all, at all, at all. So it was a bit of a cliche. There you go. But the thing that we were not trying to be cliche about is we were talking about mental health, and we did decide that Mother's Day would be a great day to talk about how particularly uh, mental health for women, mothers, postpartum depression, things mm. like that. And so the person who was speaking had shared from her own life experience of postpartum depression and her own mental health challenges. And it was super helpful to so many people who were there. And we got so much good feedback about, I've never been a part of a church service where some, you know, where this was talked about. I've never as a mother or a woman felt seen in this way. Mm. Um, This just doesn't happen. But then we also got the feedback of that was good, but, this person, like their story was from like last year. Are we sure they're going to be okay? Are they, are they the person who should be talking about this? Because like, what if like, what if it doesn't get better? What if like, or what if like, what if this happens to them again? And I know this is a person who's a friend of actually both of ours. Both of us. And yeah. well, yeah, it's going to like, it's mental health. It's, like this is just an ongoing thing and they're actually super open about it and they talk about it all the time. And that's kind of one of the great gifts that they are to all of us is that how open they are about this and, and how seen they make people feel. But it was this, is this okay that we're going to talk about it? Because what happens if like the narrative isn't clean, like then it, everything that she just said is not valid. And it's like, no, of course it's valid. <laughs> <laughs> her whole experience is valid but it's even more valid yeah but we feel uncomfortable with that and I, and I think it's sad because we think about josh hamilton we think about people with addiction issues for example nobody in any in aa or any recovery group goes oh my god somebody in this group might relapse <laughs> what yeah. will we do then like that's the whole point i mean the point is not that you want people to relapse but it is entirely assumed that there are is a high number of people in that group who will relapse at some point. And the goal is, is that when they do relapse, that they have a safe community that they can come to who will support them because they know that the really dangerous stuff is that if you relapse and you can't get help, if you don't have people that you can turn to, because then you're alone and then you're relapsing and that's when you die. Yeah. 
And I feel like in church circles and Christian circles, it's like, oh, the last place I would go is there. I mean, my brother-in-law worked with somebody who always, always joked with him. He said, you know, if you got stuck somewhere out doing something you shouldn't do, he's like, would you call me or your youth pastor? <laughs> and my brother was like, yeah, I'd call you hundred times out of a hundred. <laughs> doesn't that, but doesn't that, and, and forgive us if this episode is going a little bit longer. I know that if you, if you've gone this long, then you're going to go for the rest of it. Don't get, don't, don't give up now on us. But like, isn't that something that when given the option, most people would call their neighbor or a stranger over calling somebody who is of the cloth because they feel safer on the outside with somebody on the outside of that world than somebody entrenched within it. I, I think that is, that is a damning, damning prognosis of, of, of the evangelical church right now that we're seen as the scary place and not, and not the safe place. And we're seen as a place where you can, you can only fall once. Well, shouldn't, one, you shouldn't fall at all. But if you happen to fall, you should only fall once. I, I, this is my, like, your, your story led, led me to story. So in 2017 or 2016, I had like a major battle with mental health, major battle with it was off work for three months, um, literally like relegated to either, either like walking around in a house coat, like just, it was just like, it was bad. I remember getting back into work and I remember the kid gloves. I remember the kid gloves. Well, I remember saying like, I love to share the story. And I remember hearing these words. Well, we're not sure if you're ready. The Beep, you're going to tell me if I'm ready or not. Like, how dare you? Well, we're protecting you. Protecting me? If you were protecting me, you would have helped me before that even happened in the first place. And it would have been a place where I could have said, guys, listen, I am not doing well. I need help. But one led to the other, led to the other. And suddenly we have this idea. We have this idea. We're going to police this. So my question then is, and this is, this is probably the segue into the next episode, Who's the police here? Who is the arbiter, arbitrator of the, decide, the decider of cancel culture? Who decides? Who decides when you've had one redemption too many? Who decides? Ugh. <sighs> Us too. Us too. This has been the Chris Toussaint Eric Podcast. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to leave a five-star review. You can catch up with me on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. I'm at Eric for Slewis in all those spaces. And you can find me on all socials by simply searching the word that Chris Chase, one word. You can also find me with my goon squad putting in work at the House of Commons show on both YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Both Chris and I are regular contributors to the Meeting House blog. You can find the work that we do there at themeetinghouse.com slash blog. Special thanks goes out to CAT for providing the musical soundtrack for this podcast. You can hear more from CAT by finding them on Bandcamp or Metapop. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.